Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Uh, remember that the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, those four Gospels, they were written as the first generation of eyewitnesses were dying off. So people that saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion and burial, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, they began to die off. And these Gospels were written during that time frame so that we can know the real Jesus. You see, you can't just make up any Jesus that you want. You can't make up your own Jesus. But that's what people so often try to do. And frankly, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to do the same thing, to try to make Jesus into a character that we are attracted to, that we like, that we find affirming and enjoyable. Or to make Jesus do and say the things that others want him to do or say. People try to do this all the time. Or to make Jesus feel and think and emote the way that they want him to feel and think and emote. But if you make up your own Jesus, and please hear this, and please grasp it, make sure that you understand the reasoning. If you make up your own Jesus, then that Jesus will be powerless to affect your life or to transform you. If you make up your own Jesus, ask yourself the question, can that Jesus have any real effect on my life? Because if he ends up, after you've made him up, after you've made a picture of the Jesus that you think he should be, if Jesus ends up simply agreeing with you and affirming everything that you think and say and do, then he can't be transformative, can he? He's not much of a savior, is he? Because if he simply affirms where you're at and who you are, then you don't really need a savior. And you've dumbed him down. You've made him less than that. And at that point, he's just basically a little you. Something you can control. What we need, dear friends, what we need is the real Jesus. We need him as he really is. We need him in what he says, what he really says, and what he really does, because the real Jesus is a saving Jesus, a transforming Jesus, a life-giving Jesus. That's what we need. That's what we want, right? And that is what Mark gives us. Now, one of the major points that Mark's make, Mark makes is he makes it clear, is that Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. Jesus is God. And that Jesus, as the Son of God, ushers in a new age. And I'm uh, lacking my, uh, my slide advancer. I don't know if I should have it or if I could just rely on someone back there to do it. Um, but one thing I know is it won't magically happen. And we're not, we're not quite ready for that slide yet, but thank you. You guys are all over it. Thank you, Sean. Look at, look how handsome Sean. Look how handsome this man is. Denise is a lucky woman. Yeah, right. Thank you, brother. So Jesus ushers in a new age. He initiates it, and he's the agent whereby that new age is initiated. Now. 
let's make sure that we're clear because it's been about 2,000 years. We may take the New Age for granted. Think about this. A New Age is no small thing. Think about a major change in history, right? Think about the printing press. All of a sudden, there's the ability to print out repeatedly the same material so that it can be distributed among many people. That had a major effect in all kinds of, of parts of the world, in all corners of the planet, and in all times since that time. There's a cotton gin that sort of ushers in the, the industrial age, certainly used in very wicked ways, but also used in very productive ways, the industrial error. Or harnessing electricity in the light bulb, or, or the, and thank God for that, because we couldn't have electric guitars if we didn't have electricity. And then the internal combustion engine, and of course the semiconductor, and it goes on and on. These inventions, these improvements... They changed the course of history. But each of those technical advances, as powerful as they are, as much change as they brought, are not as big of a deal as a new age. A new age is bigger than any of these. It represents a fundamental change in the reality of existence. A fundamental change in the way the world itself works, the way life is computed. And that has deep, radical, forever effects on all of our lives. So here's where our text is going to take us today. <laughs> Can I have that? There we go. The sun launches the new age. And when he calls us, we begin again. We begin anew. The sun starts something entirely new, something shift that shifts in the, in, in the actual experience of life. And so then when he calls us, when he calls our name, when he says, follow me, we actually begin to live. Something entirely new starts. So let's take a look at some of the bigger aspects of this launching of a new age from our text today in Mark chapter 1. First and simply, the new age begins. Let's examine that, the idea that the new age begins. Oh, there we go. It was off. Now it's on. And there it's working. There we go. The new age begins. So take a look at Mark chapter 1. And, and look at the first eight verses. We're, we're actually going to read 9 through 11 here in just a moment. But look at those first eight verses. You may remember that, that one of the big things about the Gospel of Mark, one of its aspects is its tempo, how fast it is, the immediacy. Mark wants to present Jesus as directly as possible to you with, with the least amount of distraction. Now, all the Gospels have their unique aspects as they tell the same story, but that's something that's powerful in Mark. And I think what Mark's trying to do is he's trying to capture the reality of the situation. That there's a new age, and it fundamentally changes everything. So when you look at, at verses 1 through 8, you see that uh, it, it, you know, Mark uh, quotes Isaiah 42, and he says, I'm going to send my messenger. And then all of a sudden, verse 4, John appears. Boom, just like that. There's the messenger. And, and then there's, there's, there's more going on in there. But then at the end of this portion, in, in verse 8, 
John says, I, I baptize you with water, but the one coming, the one I'm preparing the way for, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then boom, verse 9, look at this, verse 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so, like I said, I think John, I think Mark is trying to capture the reality of the situation on the ground. He really wants us to get what a big deal this new age is. And, and for instance, this baptism, he, he wants it to come through. It reminds me of the ever-improving displays in our technology today, in our televisions, in our phones, in our computers, our laptops, whatever, our tablets. They keep getting better and better. And Mark's saying, I want you to have Jesus in full HD so that you can know him as I know him. I want it to be like you're right there. And he's trying to capture that. And so we see that Jesus gets baptized here. Now last week we talked about the uniqueness of baptism. We were talking about John's baptism and how unique it was. We talked about how so many religions, including the Jews, had washings. But here in this case, a full baptism, an immersion, is not just a washing of certain parts of the body, but it's this full immersion and it represents a full repentance of the way the person was living before. An entire change and therefore or because it's an entire change, when you, when you implement a total change, guess what? There's an implicit criticism of what was before. And so this, this baptism of John, it is critical of, and, and it, it's offensive to the, to the Jews of the time. Because the, the person who's getting baptized is saying, it's not enough that I was born Jewish. It's not enough that I go to synagogue. It's not enough that I listen to the religious rulers. I have to turn. I have to change. I've got to become something new. And so it's, it's offensive. Also, this baptism, it, it's something that you don't do to yourself. You, you can't wash yourself clean in this sense. Someone else has to mediate. Someone else has to do it for you. And in this case, it's John. But John's saying, this is just a temporary uh, placeholder. Another one's coming. His baptism's real. And he's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, when he baptizes you, it will be once for all. And he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you can't save yourself. You can't wash yourself. Someone has to baptize you. Someone has to save you. Well, here we come to this moment. And Jesus himself is baptized. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew, when you read that, when you read it's, uh, Matthew's account of, of Jesus' baptism, you know that John the Baptist objects to it. He protests. He says, how can, I how can I possibly baptize you? You're the baptizer. You're the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. I need to be baptized by you. How can I baptize you? There's no way. I, I can't mediate for you. You have to mediate for me. What does Jesus say? He says, let it be so now so that righteousness can be complete, so that it can be fulfilled. Well, here Mark doesn't give that detail. 
because we, we're beginning to recognize his purpose. He just wants to present Jesus to us. And so that's, that's powerful what, what Matthew's bringing out. But Mark wants to move through it. Nevertheless, it begs the question. Even Mark's uh, a, a representation here, and I think even more so because of the speed with which he handles it, the conciseness, which I don't think he's just simply trying to be short. He's not simply lazy. He doesn't want to write as much. He's trying to get to his point as quickly as he can. And because of that, it begs the question, why does the sinless Son of God, who he's been presented to us as God, why does he identify with those who are repenting by getting baptized? Well, he's going to become the means of that repentance. He gets baptized into this, he, he, he steps into this ritual, this rite, this seal that he's going to be the mediator of, that he's going to make effective down the road. And so by doing that, he fulfills the entire thing. He has the, the whole thing, it, is, it belongs to him now. He is the baptizer. And he himself has been baptized. And the Lord just, he identifies us with us through and through. We're going to see that a little bit more in the next point. He just keeps identifying with us. He identifies with us in this, that he himself is baptized. He has to go through a baptism. He has to go through life in order for him to be our Savior. And he demonstrates that here and he, and he identifies with us here. Not that he himself had sinned, but that he would take on sin. He would take on the consequence and the punishment for sin. And so he's going to become the means of that repentance. And he's the fulfillment of that repentance. He's the point of that baptism. He's the hope that the baptism offers when we baptize someone as we did two people last Sunday. The hope of that baptism is that Jesus makes it effective. That Jesus washes away our sins through his death. So he's baptized as a demonstration of what he's going to fulfill. And his baptism is a big deal in the minds of early Christians. We might not think about it too much, but it's a big deal to them, and it should be a big deal to us as well. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 22 up here on the screen. This here is the story about the disciples trying to figure out, okay, who's going to take Judas's place? Judas is now dead. He's betrayed our Lord. Someone has to take his place. And ultimately, they're going to become an apostle. And what do they say here? They say, well, let's, let's find someone. He has to fit these qualifications. And one of the qualifications is what? He had to be with Jesus and the disciples, beginning from the baptism of John. In other words, this point here, when Jesus is baptized... Until the day he was taken up from us. So, so from Jesus' baptism to the ascension, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And there are plenty of these men to choose from. And they used, they used a lot, and God had them cast a lot so that they could choose from among the men. Well, this is one of the reasons, Jesus' baptism, one of the reasons that we have believers' baptism. Because this was the decisive moment that Jesus' ministry begins. Regeneration, being born again, is the decisive moment for God's people in the new covenant. It's when the new age dawns in our hearts. 
And when that happens, as best we can tell, we are baptized upon that happening, not before, but upon that happening, we are baptized, following our Lord to demonstrate what has begun in us. So Jesus is baptized to usher in the new age. We're baptized to demonstrate that Jesus has brought that new age to life in us. So have you followed our Lord? It's time to do so. It's time to trust Him, to follow Him, and to be baptized in His name. But there's also something else going on in these verses that is immensely powerful. And it, it does show us that the new age has begun. So I'm, let me put the text up on the screen. Mark chapter 1 there, 10 through 11. Notice some of these words that I've tried to underline. Heaven's torn. In other words, the sky is torn open. And I wonder, what does that look like for the sky to be torn open? You wonder if... If you were there, could you have seen into that rift? Or was it more metaphorical to talk about what, what was so powerful was happening? was clearly something from heaven, something from God's throne room coming into the earth. And that's the idea here, is that heaven's God's throne, his presence, God's presence enters creation in this point in time and on this place of the earth. This is a very big deal. It's like the burning bush where God says to Moses, see this bush, it burns, but it's not consumed. You know what you're experiencing, it's my presence. So what does God say? He says, take off your shoes because you're in my presence. You're standing on holy ground. It's like Mount Sinai with its thunderings and lightnings and and people not being allowed to go near the base because God would kill them because the mountain had become holy with his presence. Or it's like the temple when God filled it for the first time and his presence was demonstrated through smoke and it filled the the, the temple itself. This phrase, the heavens uh, uh, being torn open, it evokes the language of Isaiah 64, which talks about the awesome arrival of God's presence and the need for sinful people to be saved because they cannot stand in His presence. This marks a holy moment. And it also means that wherever Jesus is, this presence of God is happening. And it's happening in us. Notice in these passages that there's a voice, right? A voice came from heaven. That voice is the voice of the Father. It's it's God the Father speaking. And notice as well that there's another party, another entity. It's, It's the Son. You are my beloved Son. Talking about the one being baptized. Talking about the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus. You're my beloved Son. So you have the voice. You have the Father. You have the Son being baptized. And then you have this. The Spirit descending on Him like a dove. Mark in this moment is making a very direct, very powerful allusion to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
That word hovering, translated into the English as hovering, can also be translated as fluttering. In fact, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Targums, it's the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is, which is what the people, the Jews of, of Jesus' time spoke. They spoke Aramaic. So it was the language of the people, the language they spoke. It, it says this about Genesis. It translates Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 this way. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, listen to this, fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. This likening of the Spirit of God to a dove is is rather unique. I believe this is the only connection here. And so Mark is clearly linking, he's likening this moment of Jesus' baptism where the Spirit descends and hovers like a dove to the very creation of the world. In other words, this is a new creation. This is a New moment. God is recreating. The new age is being ushered in. God is bringing salvation into this broken, hurting, pain-filled, torn world. God is not content to just stay away. But He's going to interrupt. And He's going to bring mercy and grace into this world through His Son. And we have to note this. Because here in this Trinitarian picture, this Trinitarian passage is this picture of the ultimate reality of our experience. So we gain a knowledge of God here. We recognize from this passage and others that God is three in one. This is a critical Christian doctrine. That God is, he's not simply unipersonal. In other words, he's not simply one person. But nor is he a a polygamy. He's not more than one God. He's one God in three persons. Three persons in one God. And this is, is, it, it is very challenging to grasp. We can't really grasp it. It's that idea that, that God is not more fundamentally one than three, but nor is he more fundamentally three than one. In fact, the moment we think of the one, we should think of the three, and the moment we think of the three, we should think of the one, which I know is impossible for us to do, but it is, in fact, who God is. And that is critical for us. It cannot be otherwise. We must have this Trinitarian God. Because notice that if God is just a singularity, if he is just uniperson, if he's just one, then love would never have existed and possibly still wouldn't exist. Because love is something that goes from one person to another, right? So love just alone is not possible. That's why God is three in one. And his love for himself, the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit, the Son's love for the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son, is constantly overflowing. They 
exist in a sense to love one another. Their whole existence is orbiting around the other. This is so different than us, isn't it? So different than selfishness, so different than self-centeredness, which requires that everyone else orbit around us, that we stay stationary in one place and everything else revolves around us, right? That's our heart's inclination. But that's not God. God is constantly in orbit around the good of the others in himself. He is three in one. And so if God was just alone, if he was just a singularity, then love could not have existed, at least until the creation of the world, at least until there were other creatures to love. And then you couldn't describe God as love, right? But that's exactly what he is. God is love. And that's what we see there in him. And that's what we see here at the ushering in of this new age. We see it in the creation of the world. We see it in this new covenant age where God ushers in. The son comes into the world, becomes part of the creation. And God's love is on display for all of us. And that is critical. That is critical. Look again at the passage here. Because here you have God delighting in himself. You see the love of God for himself on display. And, and rather than being self-centered like we can be when we just love ourselves, we're self-centered, we're selfish. God loves himself perfectly and he is right to love himself. And that becomes our reality. It becomes our existence. You know, the Spirit's enveloping Jesus and the Father's enveloping Jesus, my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. And so you see the love of God for Himself on display, but it is also the love of God overflowing into this creation, into our existence and being set on the world. And everybody who trusts the Savior comes into the orbit of God's love. Do you see what this means for us? Do you see what this means for our lives? Our reality in this new age. It is meant to be made up of loving relationships. Loving relationships are at the core of our lives. Our reality must be full of relationships and full of love. And when that's not our reality, we're not really living. And when it's not a reality, we're not following the Son. And when it's not a reality, we're not glorifying Him or reflecting that God of love. You see, if you're not enjoying your families, if you're not engaged and enjoying the families that God's given you, you're missing it. If you're not engaged with, and, and for our members, if you're not engaged with and enjoying the, the care groups, the relationships that God has placed you in, you're not living to the full. You're not loving to the full. If you're not enjoying the people that God has put in your life and embracing those relationships and stepping toward them, you're missing out on what God has for us. Yes, love is risky. Yes, love can be painful. But love is our reality in this new age. Relationships and love. That's why this, the, the proverb says the 
person who isolates themselves is foolish. And by the way, we have more ways to isolate ourselves than we have ever had before. We have more things designed for our distraction, for the isolation of our, our, our bodies and our brains and our emotions than ever before. You can do it constantly with your devices and your tablets and your computers and your entertainment. It's, it's all geared to isolate. And don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to make a law against any of these things. What I am saying, be aware and be engaged. Because this is our reality, brothers and sisters. Loving relationships from a loving God. And, and, and it's what sin wants to rob from ourselves. So let me show you. If you don't quite agree with that idea, you think, well, it doesn't apply directly to me. I've always been loving. Take a look at what Titus says about us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, let us pray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And, and here's how he's going to sum up. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, that's the trajectory of sin. Malice and envy. Hating and being hated. Isolation. Conflict. That's what this world is full of. But the church is to be different. That's why Hebrews tells us that when the church gathers, when it meets together, we're encouraged. That's why the church meets so much. That's why the church needs one another. So that we can be in loving relationships all the time. Take a look at 1 John 3 and look at this description. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one Another, just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so we see that the new age has begun. And it brings with it the full love of God that we engage with and live out of. But we also take, should take a look at this, that this agent, this agent that ushers in the new age, needs to be prepared and, and will be prepared here. And I, and I just want to, spend a, I want to spend less time on these two points, but I think it's important that we look at them. You know, don't you love stories that have a happily ever after ending, where everything just works out? It's almost like the, the story writer gets to the end. This is a good place to end it and ends it on that super high note. Keep them, keep them wanting more. Have them come back for more later. And, and we might feel that way in the scriptures. Like, wouldn't it be great if that's how this ended? That the new age is ushered in and then they lived happily ever after. And that's everything right there. But that's not what happens. And God doesn't call us, he, he doesn't call his people to just a, a, a simple ending. We don't know all the reasons why. We do know that it brings him glory, and we do know that someday we'll understand better. But we also know this, that God doesn't call us, his people, to do something that he's unwilling to do himself. He doesn't call us to face trial and temptation and difficulty that he is unwilling to face himself. I never saw this movie. We were soldiers, so it's, it's not an endorsement. Please don't take it that way. But I just, I just recently, just yesterday, heard someone talking about it. And, and, they, and they talked about the main character. He was a, uh, I don't know if he was a sergeant 
I believe he was a sergeant, and he, he led his men into battle, and he told them in advance, he said, he said, this was his kind of his motto and his whole idea, I'll be the first one on the battlefield, and I'll be the last one off the battlefield. In other words, I will be with you. I'm not, I'm not going to command you to do something I'm unwilling to do. I will take the risk with you. This is what our Lord has done for us. He's not a God who's far off. He's not an impersonal God. He's not a God who doesn't know. He's already been there. If you're suffering, He's already been there. He already knows. He's already experienced the worst of it. He's already experienced more than we have. This is what our Lord has done for us. So, so take a look at... at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 here. I put it up because it's so short. The Spirit immediately drove him, that's Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. We talked a little bit about this last week as well, that the wilderness is a place of dryness and death. It's a place where it's hard to survive. It's not easy to survive in a wilderness. And you know what else? Wild animals are there. They're there in the wilderness. Let me ask you, have you ever been scared of a dog? Have you ever come up on a dog that was frightening? I, I like dogs, but I have experienced dogs that have scared me from time to time. One time, when I was a, I was a paper boy, I was probably 14, 15 years old, and, and, and the worst part of being a paper boy, besides waking up and doing it every day, including Christmas, was collecting, going from door to door and collecting the, the money and I would meet all kinds of people this way, and one of the people would, one of the, one of the houses I would go to, the, the person would invite me in, to, right into the foyer there, and I would stand in the doorway, and this dog would come and just corner me there. While they would go get the money, this dog would corner me and just bark at me, and, and it was frightening. And then one day, I, I looked at this dog, I thought, you know, this dog's only about this big. I really shouldn't be afraid of this dog. This is years, you know, years. I probably started this when I was 12 or so. And it was so, like, it was so aggressive. I think that's what was frightening about it. Although it never touched me, but it would corner me there and just bark and bark and bark. Finally, one day, I realized, what am I afraid of? I'm going to deal with this dog. So when the person went away to get the money, I gave this dog the deadliest stare I could imagine. And I didn't kick it. I didn't do anything like that. My uncle did that, but I did not. I just stared at this dog. And I thought, let's just see what happens here. And I just gave it the deadliest stare I can imagine. Do you know that dog locked eyes with me, stopped barking, backed away, and then ran away? <laughs> the wild animal was tamed, and I was delivered, never to fear again. Now, Jesus is out here in the wilderness, and you see that he's out there with the wild animals. These are real wild animals. These aren't tame animals. They're out there. And, and that's a frightening thought. Imagine the possibility of lions or, or wild dogs. There's no protection around you. You're not walled. There's not a lot of people. You have no weapons. You're just alone in the wild. And that's what the scripture, when it, when it gives us this very unique phrase, he's out there with the wild animals, 
That's what it's getting at. You know, it's likely that this unique idea, that Mark puts it here because the Christians of his time were facing persecution from Rome, and one of the things the Romans would do would be to throw them into an arena with what? Wild animals. And so it could be that Mark is signaling, hey, even the wild animals, even those Jesus was thrown in, he was thrown out to the wild animals too. He knows the suffering you face. He understands the difficulty you have. He knows the loss. He knows the pain. He knows the conflict. He knows the unchanging realities that that give you anxiety, that tempt you and hurt you. He knows. It tells us he's in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days is significant in redemptive history, right? In many ways, here's just a few. Noah was in the, in the ark for 40 days, or, the, or rather the storm was 40 days. Elijah was in the wilderness for 40 days, and Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, and it was a time of difficulty, it was a time of struggle, it was a time of never reaching fulfillment. Never getting satisfaction, never getting to the promised land, always waiting by the decree of God. And so when Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, he is, he is becoming Israel, he's becoming the people of God in one person. And from here on out in the new covenant, everyone that comes to God, everyone that belongs to God, will belong to God in Christ. A phrase that is used over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is how we know God. There is no knowing of God apart from being in Christ Jesus. There is no knowing of God apart from coming to Christ Jesus. If you are to know Him, you must come to Him. You must be in Him. And that's what this is indicating, these 40 days. While He's out there, He's tempted by Satan. Satan means the adversary. Satan is tempting him. He's testing him. He's offering him ways out of his suffering. He's promising him what Satan can deliver. He's trying to, to, to drag Jesus toward himself through offers of power and prosperity and reputation. He's throwing everything he has at Jesus. And Jesus has to overcome these things. He has to fulfill righteousness. Every time Jesus turns down sin, every time he knocks off a temptation, or swipes it aside, says, no, I will not do that. No, I will not do that. No, I will not sin that way. Every time Jesus does that, he is fulfilling righteousness. Every action he does like that is obedience to God, to the Father. And in doing that, he does what we have not done. He is perfectly righteous and never sins. And because he's perfectly righteous, when he goes to the cross and he dies, he does not do so because he has disobeyed and sinned. He does it for us. And his perfect sacrifice pays for the sin, the consequences of the sin of those who trust him. You know what's amazing about this passage here? Even in the wilderness, even with the wild animals, even with the 40 days, even with 
Satan, the adversary, tempting him. Even with all of that, do you know what? He's not entirely alone. God sends his angels to minister to Jesus. Look at the present tense of that word here. The angels were ministering to him. It wasn't just at the end that they ministered to him. They ministered to him all through his temptation. It's fascinating. You know what the angels can't do? The angels can't turn down sin for Jesus. They can't turn away from temptation for Jesus. God's not going to do that for us either. God doesn't make us not sin. But even while we are in this wilderness and we face these trials and temptations, you know what God does? He ministers to us. He offers us helps. Some we may expect, some like prayer, some like the scripture, the truth that we know that we stand on, some like fellowship, the the accountability and the encouragement from brothers and sisters that strengthen us and, and spur us on. Some we know, but others are serendipitous that we don't anticipate and that God sends at just the time. The angels minister to us in this life. They they help us. You know that God is helping you right now? Don't you say, don't you say to yourself, don't you say to others, don't you say in your time of struggle, God doesn't hear, He doesn't see, He doesn't know. He doesn't help. Don't you say it. His angels are ministering to you even now. Open your eyes. Open them. See the grace of God. See the ministry that God gives to you. See the helps that He makes effective in your life to spur you on, to cause you to persevere and to endure. This is what the Lord does for us. It's important for us to know that the same Spirit that descends on Jesus is the same Spirit that drives Him into the wilderness. And Once again, you get that sense of immediacy from the Gospel of Mark. The Spirit immediately drove Him out to the wilderness. It's it's almost like He was been thrown out there, right? With the wild animals kind of thrown into the arena of, of suffering and temptation and death. That same Spirit drives Him into the wilderness. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Bob Donahue preached to us, he talked, his first point was about divine dead ends saying that God actually ordains these for His people. And and His Son is no exception. In fact, not only is His Son not the exception, His Son is the rule. His Son is the prototype. His Son is the fulfillment. And so the Spirit drives Him to a dead end. And He faces the temptation He needs to face so that He can fulfill all righteousness. You know what? God treats us like His Son. He does the same for us. There are times when the same Spirit that, that fills us and blesses us, and we, we even we have, we have the feeling inside and the emotion and the, and, the, and the reason, the rational thoughts, and we say to ourselves, I will, I'll never not know the blessing of God. He's so good. How can my eyes ever be blind to His goodness and His grace? I'll never leave Him. And then at times we're driven into the wilderness by the divine ordination by God. And when we're out there, we say, where are you? you? Where are you? I can't bear this anymore. God is treating us like he's treated his own son in that moment. And know that. 
Know that that happens to his people. Know that it must. Know that it's part of God's working in us. Know that it's part of his plan. And know that he will not leave you there. He will minister to you in that wilderness and he will bring you out again. And when he does, you will be closer to his son, more ready for the ministry that he calls you to. You'll be ready for ministry. Well, not only in this new age do, does it begin, is the agent of this new age prepared, but the effect is immediate. You know, if something's a big deal, you expect people to respond in such a way. You know, if something massive happens, we expect rejoicing. I remember when we received the single biggest gift we ever received as a church, monetary gift for this building, it was 500000 from the from uh, Charles Lasco, from this, this, this fund that this man who had passed on had made for churches that were building worship space. And it was this amazing miracle and gift. We were rejoicing. I remember that. It was a big deal. But sometimes something's a really big deal and, and, and people don't recognize it. They don't know enough. They're ignorant. So they don't realize that, that this is a big deal and they should recognize it. I, I remember in the 1970s, the very first home video game console, the Atari 2600. We didn't even bother with a model name. There were no other models. It was just Atari, you understand. And I remember Christmas time. My father worked for Full Electric Company, and they had deals with different appliance makers, and they got a deal with Atari. And, and so we got under the tree a, a, a note, an envelope, and inside it said, Atari is coming. <laughs> and I remember opening this and being like, oh, thank you so much. Because I didn't know what an Atari was. I didn't know what a home video game system was. I remember my parents laughing at my and my sister's uninformed response. Guess what? When that video game system came... I learned real quick what a big deal it was. When those block-like things that were supposed to be tanks fired up my imagination and they shot little blocks across the screen. screen. So far, I mean, I could basically trace it with my finger and yet when they blow up the other, oh my goodness, the action and the excitement of this video game system, it blew my mind. This was a big deal. But I didn't know it. I couldn't tell. Not until it came. Well, watch how these men respond to the son who brings in the new age. They're able to tell, they're able to tell that a big deal is happening. Let me read for you Mark chapter 1, verses 14, 14 to 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the house, in the boat, with the hired servants, and followed him. Look at that immediacy. You see, the time is now, Jesus is saying. 
It's not coming. This is not a prophecy. This isn't a prophecy from 400 years ago. This isn't Malachi talking about what's to come. It's not Isaiah. It's not even John the Baptist who has just been arrested. I'm not just a prophet, Jesus is saying. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment. And that's why Jesus comes and he begins, begins proclaiming the, the good news, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that God himself is now going to rule over his people, rule over the world, and he's going to do so perfectly. It's what we've been longing for. And there's more to come. There's more to come when Jesus returns again. But God is inserting his reign into this world, and the world has changed at this point. It's a new age ushered in. And the scripture says that immediately they followed. You know, at this time in, in, in history, in this part of the world, the career wasn't as important. So, so I think when we look at this, we, we, we see this passage and we say, oh my goodness, how do they just leave their job and go follow Jesus? Like, how are they going to make it in life? How are they going to be? That's the kind of the first things we'd begin asking. And, and that was important, but we know that they were going to fish again. And actually, we know that they're going to talk to their family again. The scripture is going to tell us that at different points. But the bigger deal in the career here is the leaving of their families. This was the family business. They're not the hired hands. They're leaving the family business to become a disciple of Jesus. You know, one of the other things that's fascinating about this is that generally the students would pursue the rabbi and say, hey, they would go to the rabbi and say, I'd like to learn from you. Will you accept me as your student, as your pupil? But in this case, it's the teacher going and say, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Now, we know this is a special time in redemptive history. But there's a reality in which Jesus has done this with everyone who trusts him. He comes to us. And he says, follow me. I'll make you my disciple. I'll make you a fisher of men. Follow me. And you know those disciples, they're going to have ups and downs. They're going to miss a whole lot of things. But Jesus is just saying, follow me. And as they follow him, he makes them fishers of men. He makes them his own disciples. You know, when Jesus says, when he says, follow me, and they leave their families, you, you really get a sense of, oh my goodness, what about taking care of their families? Well, provision is going to be made for that. If I could have that, uh, if I could have um, Luke 14, there we go, 26. And look at this, Jesus says this in another place. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We see that word hate here and we say, well, wait a minute, how, he really, what about loving relationships? Didn't, isn't that who God is? Yes, yes. But, but Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus isn't saying to hate actively. He means comparatively. He means take that word hate. And that's, that's the strength that we need to talk about. When it comes to how you relate to others and how you relate to Jesus, we need a, a contrasting word, one that's strong enough that captures the idea to the fullest extent that we can capture it. And he says, here's the word in comparison to how you love your family you need to love Christ so much more, so much more fully, so much more devotedly, so much more singularly, that your love for Jesus makes your love for others look like hate. 
And Jesus doesn't overwork the metaphor, and obviously he talks many ways about loving one another. So please don't misunderstand, but what he's really driving at is that when he calls us, when he calls out to us, we are to immediately and radically and fully and completely step into this new age that he has brought in, that he has ushered in and ushered into our hearts and we are to respond with an entire fullness to him. Our lives are to be about him. Our lives are to be in him, entirely immersed in the baptizer of our souls. You see, he's given us a new life. He's given us a new life in this new age. I want to ask if I could have that, there we go. I want to ask the ushers to come and the worship team to come. This morning we're going to take up communion together. We're going to respond by coming to the Lord's table. And just like it might be hard for us to recognize at times that we're in a new age, that the DNA of existence has been fundamentally altered because Jesus has entered the world. We may also, if we've been Christians for some time, forget that we've been given a new life, a transformed life. And that transformational power, that ability to become more like Jesus, well, it's always available to us. Jesus is always working in us and changing us and, and, and bringing his kingdom to bear in our lives. Let me make the big connection here this morning. Let me make the big connection. Here's the big connection. The big connection to our lives is this. If you see massive deficiency in your followership of Christ, if your followership of the Son is off track, if it's even hard for you to recognize that you're following Him, if you say, I don't know that I'm following Him at all right now, then you're not responding in fullness. You're not responding with immediacy you're not responding proportionately to the new age that's been brought into your world. You're not responding like these disciples who left their nets and left their families and left their careers to follow him and be his disciple. You see, the sun launches the new age he starts it. He initiates it. It's come now. And when he calls us, we're in this new age, and when he calls your name, we have a new life. We're transformed. And our lives need to look that way. And so, Christian, are you stuck? Does it seem like you are in an old life? You have not begun anew, but you've just gone down the same old rut. The answer for you is Jesus. It's what Mark is presenting to you. It's to devote yourself to Him. What does it look like to follow Him? What does it mean to pursue Him? What does it mean for you to drop your net? What does it mean for you to leave your family? And please, nobody quit your jobs or hate your family. That's not exactly it, right? But what does it mean in your life for you to do that so that you really can follow Him? and begin anew. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.